Hi, folks. Steve Urban here. Today's episode of the Rutterflex podcast is sponsored by Marketing 360. My good friend J.B. Kellogg and his team do such a fantastic job for us and so many other companies. Marketing 360 is the number one platform for small business, and it's everything you need to grow your business. If you need marketing support, I really encourage you to contact them at marketing360.com slash writerflex, and we'll add that link to the description of this episode for easy reference. And on today's episode of the Riderflex podcast, we have guest Stephanie LaPierre. She's the founder and CEO of Tillbook, a fast-growing and exciting enterprise software company. They connect buyers and suppliers for faster, better, and more trusted business. Stephanie LaPierre on the Riderflex podcast. How are you doing, Stephanie? I'm very good. Yourself? I'm hanging in there. I'm I'm in Colorado today. How about yourself? Oh, I'm lucky you. I'm a big skier, but I'm in Toronto. I'm in flat Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Okay, that's right. So you grew up in Canada, right? You're, are you French? I am French-Canadian from Quebec. All right. So you speak fluent French? It's my first language. I actually learned English when I was 18. Okay. Can you say uh, uh, something like, Steve, how are you today? Or something like that. Oh, all right. I like it. Very nice. Okay, very cool. <laughs> I uh, the, the biggest challenge I've had is uh, I was invited on uh, uh, national television, French national television, a couple of years ago to do a live interview in French. And that was, you know, it's been so long now that I have been, and I've never worked in French. So trying to find all the, how do you say AI and scale and fundraising. Um, luckily, I have you know, my, my brother-in-law is in, uh, is in PR. So he helped me the night before to get all the terminology I needed to go live. Anyway, it worked out, but that was really uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I can't I mean your accent. I mean, I could, you know, a little bit here and there, but, uh, I, like I mentioned to you when we were doing some pre-chat, some of your early podcast interviews, I could hear it more, but as you move along here, I hear it less, less and less. Well, so tell the listeners about yourself a little bit. Um, give us some personal background, where you grew up, family, uh, you know, things like that. Go for it. Yeah, so I'm, as I mentioned, I'm from Quebec. Uh, I grew up with a family of entrepreneurs. Actually, my grandfather started uh, bottling and distribution division of Pepsi oh. back in, I think, in the 30s or 40s. Um, and sadly, in the 50s, he passed away. And so my grandmother decided to take over the business. I never worked a day in her life, had three kids, uh, but she figured that this could be a way for her to make a living. And so she hired someone in finance and someone to oversee uh, manufacturing and distribution. And she uh, basically took on Pepsi Cola in Quebec. And so very inspired by that, um, my dad started working for the business as well. So an entrepreneur, very invested in the community. Okay. Um, and my mother completely different, but also very entrepreneurial. So always been, always had her own business. My sister has always been an entrepreneur. My brother is an entrepreneur. Uh, so I grew up sort of surrounded and not really knowing any other way of living. I left Quebec when I was 18 to learn English. So that worked out pretty well. Okay. And I went to be a ski bum on the, on uh, Western Canada. So I was in Whistler. If you remember the Olympics a few years ago in Vancouver, okay. uh, Whistler's about an hour and a half from Vancouver. And, uh, 
super fun. Got to be a ski bum with Justin Trudeau, our prime minister. Um, <laughs> that, that, that dates me and him. Uh, and then, and then decided to go to university in Ontario, mostly to learn English, to get to, to you know, be more fluent in English, uh, speaking and writing, which I didn't have. Out of Whistler, you learn Australian English, you learn, you know, European, British English, and all kinds of, of different version of it. But uh, I had never, you know, learned how to read or write. And so going to university was definitely a challenge in a new language. Um, mm. But, mm. you know, it worked out. I graduated and, and I, I can speak English. <laughs> <laughs> did you know, did you know what you wanted to do at that time? I mean, you, did you have an idea of what you wanted to be or, you know, talk to me about that? Yeah, I think I've, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. So okay. uh, my first business was actually before I left for Whistler, I partnered um, with two guys and we bought a production firm that had a book of artists. And then we were doing corporate incentive events and uh, we oh. would book artists at uh, events and, and bars and restaurants. Um, but you know, good first learning experience. I sold my share of the company and then used the proceeds to go be a ski bum for, oh. for a year. And then went, went to university with sort of, I think at the time I was hoping to find people with who I, I would connect with and then build a business, uh, at university. And so I probably went to the wrong school for that, but, uh, okay. you know, it okay. ended up starting my own business in my twenties. So very nice. Now, by the way, what happened to the beverage distribution company did does the family still own that or you, you didn't want to work for the family business uh so in, 90, in 1991 pepsico bought ended up buying most of the bottlers and distributors so they centralized their operations oh. and so my family exited at the time okay all right i was wondering what happened there i didn't know if uh okay sounds good all right so then what happens walk us through your your career a little bit uh some of the stuff you did before teal book go ahead so uh, after university, I worked, uh, so I was interviewing um, for jobs. My, my degree was in a bachelor in commerce with a uh, focus in marketing management. And so I was looking for marketing positions and, and companies. And I was not really excited about being a coordinator. That's sort of how you start uh, having to work with different functions and sort of, I, you know, I was sort of, it was tempered. Um, but I walked into my first job interview when my first job, I walked in this tiny little building. I almost turned around actually, because I was interviewing these like fancy ad agencies and big companies. And suddenly I'm walking in this little crappy building. Uh, but when I walked in, I met these two guys who had started a communications agency focused in pharmaceutical and biotech. And they had bought a publication and they were really building out that agency. And so I got pretty excited. I remember my salary was like $30,000, non-negotiable. But I, I knew that I was going to be able to use that as a huge learning opportunity and being employee number three or four was going to give me that advantage of doing a lot more faster. Mm -hmm. And in fact, my first, um, my first pitch was within a couple of weeks with a large biotech company to launch a drug and the product manager, this was in Canada, so the product manager was only speaking French. And so I went from basically coordinator to account executive within a couple of weeks. <laughs> so I was the only employee that could speak French. Uh, but I learned a lot. That agency went to 50 or 70 employees within a couple of years. Nice. Uh, and then after that, I decided to go and carry the bag and become a pharmaceutical rep. Um, got okay. pretty bored doing that. It was sort of fun for the social life being in your early 20s, make good money, get a car. Uh, and I learned some of the really good basic principles in selling. 
Um, and then I went to work for, uh, I got recruited uh, to work for a company called ISM, or IMS, sorry, ELF, which was a data company uh, in prescription data. Mm. And there's there, the first, there's, I thought, there's the first data, there's the first data tie in right there. Yeah, I saw, I saw the value of data and also the margin, but I saw the upside of having good data to make more informed decisions. And okay. so, and saw I, IMS being like a huge company uh, that were growing really, really fast. And so that, that was pretty exciting. I was there for a period of time and my now husband, who I was dating at the time, got a position for a biotech company in Boston. Okay. And so we moved to Boston. My first agency hired me to build the U.S. Uh, uh, side of their business. I was 26, 27, um, and I had the opportunity to build a company basically from scratch. So that was a nice sort of opportunity to do it on someone else's, you know, investment. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, and then I ended up, you know, making that company, um, you know, fairly successful, won some big accounts with Johnson and Johnson and at the time Bayer and other uh, Genzyme and other clients. And so, but because we are all of our operations were in Canada and I was in the U S I ended up becoming also project management, which I didn't love. I love the win. I love the strategy and building the opportunity, but the day-to-day -day management of those projects is not my strong um, mm. suit. And I traveled a lot. And so at the time that was 2006, I got pregnant with now my almost 13 year old. And um, I think that was a pretty defining moment to decide. My husband was traveling a lot, had a global position uh, with this biotech company. And so I decided to write down what I, was, what I was really good at, what I wasn't good at, what I loved and had to absolutely be part of my career and what absolutely could not be part of my career. And uh, I do believe, and when I, I coach, I mentor a lot of female founders and people that maybe are in transition mode and trying to figure out if it's time to start their own business, I encourage them to do that exercise because it's quite mm -hmm. telling mm -hmm. uh, to really be honest with yourself on what you think you're good at. Because if you do something you love, it doesn't feel like work, right? If you're passionate about what you do, you know, what I've done in the last five years in building this tech company, you know, uh, without an enormous amount of passion, I could have not nearly be as resilient in building and, and getting it to where we are today. And so I think that was the sort of the a really defining moment for me. And so you were starting to have some reflection right in there. Is that when you did you quit your job and say, I want to start a consulting business or I did? No, I did. So uh, one of the core theme is that I love people and I love making connections. Okay. And so, um, which could have led to probably recruitment, truthfully, a lot of people call me about talent. Mm -hmm. And at the time I felt that recruitment was hard because you rely on people to, in, to be accountable. Mm -hmm. And um, I found that to be harder, but I thought always, especially when I was working for a pharmaceutical company, I had a product manager role at some point where I was meeting a lot of agencies and and was trying to differentiate my brand from other brands and uh, felt that um, I want to find innovation, but it was really hard. And so I was spending a lot of time meeting agencies that would tell me they're innovative, but I would walk away thinking like, well, not really, it didn't bring me value. And so that was the first sort of like, could I do this recruitment sort of business model, but for the B2B space? Could I help 
brand teams uh, in large companies find innovation through suppliers that are truly innovative okay. or thinking the right way. And so Matchbook was my first consulting business. And the premise was to find innovation to solve business problems. Why Matchbook? Why, ma why that name, by the way? Oh, I just, uh, so I, I did that. Facebook was just coming out and I had a small group of friends on Facebook and I sort of pitched the idea and got a bunch of names like Legwork and Matchstick and Matchstick was taken from a lot. Uh, Matchbox was taking a lot. Sort of the idea that, you know, when you used to date back in the days and you could smoke in bars, you would put your phone number in a, in a match, <laughs> Matchbox. And so Matchbook sort of sort of your book of business, your, your book of suppliers. Um, so that was the premise of Matchbook. When you, when you um, started it, did, did you have a client when you, when you filed for the LLC, when you got the, the name on GoDaddy and the URL, did you have a client or you, you not, not yet? <laughs> no, that was 2007. So huge financial crisis. Oh. Uh, but when you start from the ground up, there's nowhere to, to go but up, right? <laughs> so I've been asked often, like, how was it to start a company in 2007? Well, it was fine oh. because I had nothing. Uh, so one contract was a huge win. Uh, no, and we didn't have really social media. Like, like LinkedIn was not wildly adopted. And so right. what I did at the time is I wrote out a little press release, got my picture taken, um, and um, and then sent it by email to all my contacts in the pharmaceutical and biotech space. Okay. All right. Now, when you made this move, how many children did you have at the time then? Just one, two? One. One. You had one. So did you tell your husband, I'm just curious, like you and your husband, you're like, cause I'm guessing you were making pretty good money before you quit your job. And did you come home and like, you're like, Hey, uh, listen, we're going to cut our income in half. Cause I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to start matchbook and I'm probably not going to make very much the first year. I'm just, how'd that conversation go? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Um, I was not loving what I was doing or who I was working with at the time. And so I think there was that complexity okay. and, and, because, and it was more complicated than that because we were not married. I didn't have the proper visa for me to be in the U.S. or work in the U.S. Oh. Um, so the only way it was to be sponsored by another company or start my own business and incorporate into Canada. And so I that see. was an easier way for me to stay incorporated in Canada and then just be sort of living also in Boston and then, and then split my time. I had to be a certain amount of days in, in Canada, which I, we were visiting often enough. Hmm. Um, so that's how I got around that. And then, um, and then the condition at the time was like, well, if you're happy and it can pay for itself, right? So that, um, and yeah, I think that was kind of it. Like as long as it doesn't cost us money for you to be in business, there's no downside. And, and I, you yeah. know, every, every day I'm always coming up with some business ideas. And at some point my husband's like, just pick one, like whatever <laughs> it is, just pick one. <laughs> and all these ideas, that cool idea about wine, like to be able to peel off the labels on wine. So, and then digital kind of labeling of wine, which now exists, of course. Um, I had so many different ideas. And so this one was the, the, the asset, you didn't need a lot of capital to start a consulting business, right? right? right, um, right you need a client right. and you need to generate some revenue and be able to set enough aside to, to continue investing. When, so, when did you, yeah, when did you get that first, when did you get that first contract where you're like, holy cow. Somebody it was, just, yeah, no, it was within hours. So I send this, I send this press release by email. And four hours later, I got a company called Serono, EMD Serono. And someone in that meeting had heard from someone I knew uh, about Matchbook. Cool. And she called cool. me saying, I heard about you guys. 
And you guys, would you, you guys, guys be able, yeah, would you guys be able to help us find an ad agency to launch this MS drug? And I was like, you know, we would love to help. <laughs> and so uh, managed that process. And then within love a couple it. of days, a client of mine at Bayer was looking for um, suppliers to do booths at uh, more like um, uh, like uh, trade shows. Uh, so they need to redo the booth and then have that booth services to multiple global conferences. And they want to send it out to bid, and so I did that, and then and then it just filed. Yeah, yeah. And I still own that company; I don't operate it anymore. But it's 13 years old now, and we've never been without a contract. So it's been congratulations, really great. congratulations, thank you. I mean, a, a consulting firm that's grown with employees that's lasted 13 years, that you still are uh, the majority owner of, that kicks off profits and revenues to you while you build something else. I mean, hey. That's about as good as it gets. Good job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I, I always thought if I could scale that, because people, it's hard to scale. Like a consulting business has a lot of upside. It's not, it's not expensive to build. Um, and I've grown Matchbook completely organically. I mm. never even borrowed a dime to a bank, even to have uh, a line of credit. And, good. Uh, good, and good I, was able to, I was able to attract really smart people that want to be part of it that had you know extensive years of experience in procurement and, and supply chain and strategic sourcing most mothers truthfully that want to be at home and spend more time with their families and but didn't want to lose having 10 15 20 years experience in that space and so one way to do it was to join and be able to work with customers who were looking for their expertise and so mm. that business has grown and i'm really fortunate because that team is totally self-sufficient now uh, i i approve you know um major decisions major decisions I, yeah 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 but um, i don't operate it at all did you and then at some point you were like okay well i'm, I'm getting bored and i want to like start something else from the ground up <laughs> how did you why walk why walk away from being the active day-to-day -day, you know quote ceo and start something else why Debatably, I would have a lot more money if I just spent all this energy and time on building out the consulting firm. Uh, and so it's, I think it puzzled a lot of people as to why I would go and mess with that because, mm -hmm. you know, Matchbook, the margins are healthy. It's 40% or so, 35 to 40% of it's good money. There's a need for it in the market. Um, it's very specialized in biotech companies now that, that raise a ton of money and need to build a full supply chain uh, from scratch to be able to launch their first commercial asset globally. So it's a great business. Um, but I was always puzzled with the fact that I had worked with large organizations and what we were doing to find innovation started translating into uh, this new role out of procurement called strategic sourcing. And strategic sourcing is really there to be more strategic with the business and understanding the supplier needs and supplier fit and extracting the most value of your suppliers uh, while you keep the, the organization out of you know uh, trouble um, and you're maximizing the dollar value. But and so I started doing that for large companies where they love their process so much that they ask us if we could come in and help uh, improve strategic sourcing or bring more value of strategic sourcing with the business. So that was my first taste of what procurement was. And then that consulting business became a full service procurement and strategic sourcing service to uh, those companies that were raising a lot of capital and were building procurement for the first time. And when you have a clean slate, it's kind of fun because you know the operational and financial value of good procurement, but, but often procurement is not necessarily set up in the right way. And when it's not, it's 
terrible. It can be, you know, adding an enormous amount of friction and, and, and the process and, and, you know, it's very difficult for procurement to be successful. The business doesn't see value and there's a bunch of problems with it. And I want to understand why there was so much problem with procurement. Why was it such a function that was not leveraged by the business? Because if procurement was successful and was good, it's, it's so incredibly efficient. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I wanted to solve. And when I started building these procurement functions and educating CFOs and CEOs of these hyper growth companies of the value, because they usually don't think about procurement. They think about supply chain, finance, but procurement sort of like, oh, we hire the smart people. They know the supplier. Meanwhile, like, you know, very, very quickly, you end up in trouble or having a lot of disparate data, decisions, a lot of duplication of effort, a lot of lost opportunity, a lot of cash bleeding for no reason, because either people are not educating and negotiating or they didn't do enough diligence or they hired the supplier because they, they know the guy. Yeah. Um, and, and, and you run into some pretty big problems and then suddenly you want to bring procurement in either because the board's asking for it or there's this situation from the compliance perspective and then you're, you're, then it's really hard because bringing procurement later and then finding good procurement is also hard, but you get bad procurement too late. Like there's just, it's just not a win, win. Like the, the person who's coming in to build the function, it's really a big challenge. You need to, to find a superhero to do it because you've got to go back and change people's, the way mm -hmm. people do things and expectations. Like dating for the first time, if your husband tells you all these things or your wife, you listen it all and you remember it. But if six months later they say, well, you know, something completely new or a year later, 10 years later, you're like, what? Um, so you listen at the beginning and I find when you start in a company and if this is a process, if you work for us, these are the processes, this is how you have to go about doing certain things. This is, you know, um, the contract or how we look at terms, or this is how we value our partners. Suddenly like you're, you decide to work for a company that embraces that. And then you're going to, you're going to accept it. It's harder six months or a year or two or three years later. Say, okay, now we have processes and now you have to do things a certain yep. way yep. Um, and Super so yep. um, I did that um, you know for quite a few years with Matchbook it, be, it really became a strategic sourcing and procurement consulting firm to hyper growth okay. companies mostly in the biotech space okay um, and then it gave me first seat to like all the problems of procurement why is this happening why in our day-to-day -day lives we make decisions like so fast we can buy things we can you know the waste tells me how long it's going to take me to the office and the other route I should be taking. I book a restaurant so easy, but when I go to work and I need suppliers just to do my job, there's an enormous amount of friction. We've done a study that shows 240 plus hours of work between I have a business requirement to getting that suppliers vetted and onboarded and ready to start working with you. And that's just not acceptable like, mm. in, in, in our time. We uh, did a research just a couple of months ago with Wakefield that showed that it takes up to four days just to update a data point on a supplier and up to 21 days to validate and onboard that supplier into your system. And so when, you know, when, when things like COVID happens and you need to, to shift gears really, really fast, you know, even though you may have a lot of different technology and software, you don't have access to information that makes you you know, adapt to market changes fast enough. And that puzzled me, like why there's so much friction. And it came to the fact that if employees don't have access to good information fast enough to make decisions, it's because the organization just doesn't have it. Because right. it, it, it lives everywhere, but nowhere. It lives in people's head. It lives across multiple software, 
Yep. And a lot of software companies have made this promise of, you know, cloud-based technologies fixing the data problem. I just didn't buy into it. Like they're all competing for the same market share. It's going to continue being disparate data source. And you really need to build it from the outside as an agnostic data platform to be able to unify information and feed those systems differently. And I just became obsessed with the idea of fixing it because I could see it. I could see the solution. I just didn't know how hard it was going to be to build it, but I could see the solution. I just became, you know, it took me nine years of, of trying to kill it as much as I could. And I, I incorporated it. And then I got pregnant with my third daughter and I was like, I can't do it now. Then wait another. And then it just was in my face. Every time I worked with a company, it was like if they had data, all of this, all of this, like all this waste or all of these lost opportunities, like would just be, you know, the upside would meet significant and time and dollars and, and, and mitigating risk and so, so much value um, that I just need to do it. And I couldn't find it. I was trying to find it for my clients and it just didn't exist. It didn't exist. Nobody else was building that. I, I, it's hard to believe, right? I mean, I can't believe nobody else had this going on. Okay. So now you're not by nature a developer or a tech, you know, you, you can't write code. So <laughs> I really can't. I really, really can't. So, so when you knew you found the problem, now you're ready to solve it. You're ready to leap. And now what do you do? Do you, do you, did you make a move to raise cash first? Did you start surrounding yourself with, with tech people that could help build out a platform? What'd you, what was your next move? So, I mean, I would do it very differently today. Um, I did it a bit of the stupid way and, and the way I did it made me learn a lot. So I'm not taking it back, but in normal circumstances, you have an idea like that. You find the team, you go and raise cash, right? And then you build it yeah. properly. Um, at the time, I just didn't know. I had built a company organically and I thought I could do that again to a certain <laughs> point. Little different, little, little, little different when you're building a SaaS company, right? <laughs> yeah. And so I know you think like Sean Parker is going to show up and, you know, if the idea is so good, he's going to come and make, introduce us to the right investors right. Uh, and it didn't work out that way. Um, so the first thing I did is, is find a partner, a technology partner that I, I outsourced. Okay. Um, and at the time, the idea was to build an MVP that we could present to companies okay. and see if we could get buy-in. And then, um, and I had a very different model at the time that did generate cash. And so um, ah. we, don't, we don't use that anymore. By the time we were selling a membership to suppliers. And so if they were buying a membership, we had this whole teal coin sort of built in. I don't want to go too much into it because it doesn't exist anymore. But it's kind of cool. It's sort of, we had built our own currency and we're able to kind of build it up in a way that I was able to generate over a million dollars in the first uh, year and a half by myself. Revenue? Um, revenue? So, yeah and, yeah. and and you bootstrapped that with this partner you talked about. You didn't have to raise cash for that. Is that accurate? I didn't raise cash. So my, my goal was if I could sign five suppliers a month, I could cover my technology expenses. I see. I and see. So my, I, I would work 18 hours a day and talk to, you know, at least 18 to 25 supplier a day to try to sell them into this, this vision that we could solve the problem of, not having buyers having enough information about their company and all the ways that goes into business development um, and not being at the right time at the right place and being into stuck into these really expensive RFPs. And I got the supply side really excited about that, um, sold enough membership to get us, keep us going. Um, but it was not scalable. The way we were building it was not going to scale. We had spent too much time with suppliers for the amount of money we would get from the memberships. And we were not generating enough opportunities at the time to make it, you know, appealing enough to, to kind of 
sort of fly, flywheel. Um, and then at one point we had, we landed a big company. I said, we don't want to charge suppliers. We want as many suppliers as possible. And their concept was if I could find suppliers that do the same thing, I could start creating hyper competition, which kind of went against what we were selling to suppliers, right? About being more thoughtful, being more intelligent in your business development, spending less time on RFPs. Didn't go against it, but it was definitely a different value proposition. Um, and for that, that, that uh, contract to land, we needed to find more suppliers. And I always remember the chief procurement officer said, you're not ready for prime time. I was like, well, what does it mean to be ready for prime time? It's just, well, we need at least 500,000 companies in Killbook. And we had like 6,000 or something. And, uh, and so I went and overnight found a data partner that gave us uh, data for 1.8 million companies. And so I came back a few days later. I said, okay, I've got 1.8 million suppliers. Am I ready for prime time? And he's laughing to tell that story. And I flew to Boston like six o'clock in the morning to deliver the proposal. I sat Starbucks across the company to deliver the proposal in person. Um, that was our big, that was a big first win. And, and then realizing that what we had, the data we had was unusable because the data was not good enough. And the, mm. the, the technology partner that we had was great at building software, but not a data company. And we really needed to find a way to build and, and, and normalize data and start aggregating, you know, aggregating it in a way that we could start generating uh, information about businesses. Um, and that's when my first sort of pivotal moment was to find our CTO, Jeff Petal. Ah. Um, and Jeff, you know, had someone told me about this guy that was at a company that got recently acquired. So, and he seemed like to have the right background. When I met Jeff, he had been at Google. He had uh, two masters in computer sciences uh, at the University of Toronto. His last uh, master was focused on machine using big data and usability of big data and machine learning. He was on the machine learning admission committee for the UFC program uh, for ML and had worked at Ariba in our space for 10 years when they were building the catalogs, the fire okay. catalogs and supplier network. And before that was at IBM. And so we had like the, you know, for us to do business with the customers we're going to do business with, we needed to have security, we need to have scalability, uh, you know, we need to build the infrastructure really, really well. And then we needed to start generating and seeding our own data set. Like relying on someone else is, is not defensible enough. And the mm. data was just didn't exist in the way that we needed to, 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 to make it available to our customers. And so that was a big pivotal point. And I remember meeting hundreds of investors because now I had six clients, I'd landed this big company, um, you know, and we were meeting investors and I was getting a lot of no's. And, and, and you had, and you had not raised any cash. This, so this is your first attempt. You're now you're trying to raise cash for the first time. So, so track back a year and a half before, um, and it's sort of, it's sort of a story that I, I don't tell too often because it makes it sound too easy, but I was on a soccer field watching my daughter play soccer and there was a mom there we're chatting and she goes, I see you always like running and, traveling and like what do you you know what do you do and i said well i'll be traveling a lot more because now i'm raising capital so she says well how much are you raising and i said it's probably two million and she goes oh i may be able to invest like why don't we book an appointment i come in and, and chat about your business and i was like what? Uh, okay <laughs> and she did she, she came in uh her family office which is her brother and her and they just had inherited a lot of money um oh. and uh wow. she was looking to put her she, she was put it, looking to put her capital to work and so she was on angel 
you know, uh, lists and different websites trying to find businesses to invest into. And uh, there I was hustling and she could see it and she could see me and really love the vision. Wow. And so I wow. did raise angel money up front. I didn't, it was not 2 million, but we did get a million. So that gave us sort of to continue building out, start attending trade shows, doing more marketing. So we would be known to analysts and customers. And that was the initial days. And then the capital we raised in our seed round allowed us to bring the technology fully in-house and then rebuilt Scalebook with the platform we have today. So on Google, uh, we were able to see data uh, right away so that when we relaunched, it was a super smooth transition for existing clients. And then we launched with an enormous amount of data that we had actually generated. Um, and so that when was you, the first pivot. When you raised, well, I have to ask you, getting that first set of money from the family office, from the lady on the soccer field, when you went to start pitching and raising cash again, you probably had this false sense of like, oh, this is, this is, this is going to totally. be easy. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Hold on. My kids, I've decided to take on a project. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Uh, Sorry, this is the, the COVID days of, of yeah, working with kids at home. Totally okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. You yeah, thought so it was going to be. I think it was going to be easier because, you know, the idea and the opportunity is so great i'm biased but it's such a big opportunity nobody's tackled it this way and it's such a big problem we did a research at wakefield research that we did two months ago showed that 93 percent of supply chain and procurement executives claim having negative impact to the business due to misinformation and poor, data, poor supplier data quality we're talking about 67 percent uh, of financial loss delayed timelines and projects unhappy customers uh, termination of relationships due to misinformation. And so, and the media picked up on this. We were listed, um, or we had, it was an article on Forbes and it was the editor's pick. They picked up on it because it's so widespread, but no one's talking about this. Mm. Like why is data so Because it's bad? not fun. You know, you know why nobody, they're, they're not talking about it because it's not fun. It's not sexy. It's not exciting, right? That's why they're not talking about it. <laughs> I think it is. The, I mean, the, the, the use cases, once you start understanding and you're able to extract data, and the amount of effort yeah. companies would, would do and the amount of capital invested in trying to unify and fix their data is so monumental, but data changes all the time. So it's always a repeated exercise mm. um, and you can fix it just by adding, you know, out of the box, a platform that just turns the light onto your supplier data. You now have a unified dynamic view of who you do business with at 100%. And then you can fuel that information to all the legacy system and the digital solution that you've bought. Like it's so powerful, but you know, it took a long time to us find a way to articulate how, why, right? Because yeah. there was a lot of why, but people think so traditionally data is usually cleansed by a service provider. So if you say your data as a service, they're like, well, where's your service team? Right. Or, you know, they see the output of good data and then they say, well, you have a search engine. So now you're a supplier discovery platform. Like they want to box you into something. Mm. And we got trapped into this a little bit because we started building software and a beautiful interface to get buyers to interact with our data based okay. on those business case. And so we appear to the market as being another digital solution, another solution to add to your e-procurement stack. Uh, we were seen as a knowledge management of your suppliers or supplier discovery and we started getting data set around small and diverse businesses with the certificate. Um, and so we, we were now seeing as a supplier uh, diversity solution. And we got trapped into this and we're building software. Um, and if we had 
kept on that route, we would have just been continuously building software and the software would have never got good enough. There's so much competition for all these business cases that are more robust. And so we would have been a lightweight version of all these different uh, solutions that you can buy in the market. And that's our second pivotal moment is when Matt Salagdari, who's now our VP of commercial strategy, came from our world, was in a company that was acquired by one of the large software players in our space. And at that company saw that a lot of the failures in implementation of these systems or the low adoption of those systems was mostly caused because of poor data quality. And so he reached out on LinkedIn and said, hey, you know, if you're building what I think you're building, not what I'm reading on your website, you're sitting on a gold mine. This is what's going to transform procurement. This is what's going to enable the digital transformation. And he, he was able to articulate exactly my vision. Um, and so we did a lot of change. Last year was a big year for us. We uh, ended up um, testing the market initially to see if it, if it resonated, if we were to reposition ourselves as the supplier data platform or the data network that was to power the digital enterprise, power your e-procurement uh, technology stack, but it goes beyond procurement because supplier data lives in financial systems and legal systems and yep. security, sustainability, risk. Um, and that felt like G-Force from the market. Uh, that got customers excited. Um, I was at a conference in September uh, just, you know, we had the largest companies in the world uh, there and I got on stage and I said, raise your hand if you have some confidence in the quality and the completeness of your supplier data today. I'm not talking about transactional data because that's been covered, spend data, but like the completeness of who you do business with today, like who's feeling good and everyone laughed. Yeah. <laughs> I was going right? to say we're talking, we're talking Disney, BP, GM, uh, like Siemens, like big companies uh, yeah. have hundreds of thousands of suppliers and they all laugh. And then you ask, you know, raise your hand if you believe that good and complete supplier data quality is absolutely critical to your digital transformation. And you get 100% <laughs> of people raising their hands. And then I usually ask, you know, uh, who's invested in a cloud-based S2P or P2P in the last 24 months? And then you get three quarters of them raising their hands and you're like, okay. Mm. So we've invested millions of dollars in these systems and you still don't claim to have good quality data. We have a huge data crisis and we all agree that there's a huge data crisis and I'm here to talk about a solution and suddenly like, well, tell me more, right? And so uh, that felt really good. And then we were able to attract new investors. Uh, we closed another round. And I saw I saw that. I saw you just closed another round. Yeah, so it's on LinkedIn, so it's public knowledge, right? I, I mean, I saw it. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, you closed yeah, yeah. it in yeah. December or January, something like that. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. and then we had new awesome investors, uh, including Workday Ventures, so Grand Ventures out of Rapid, uh, Grand Michigan, or Grand Rapids, sorry, in Michigan, and Refinery Ventures out of Cincinnati. Um, very strong in our space, and, um, and Workday Ventures, uh, you know, just being a, a tremendously strategic investor for us. No control, so we are, yeah, that, thank you. And they got excited with our machine learning uh, capabilities and our affiliation to the University of Toronto being seen as one of the best AI program. And we're also partners with the Vector Institute, which is the, the you know, it's sort of the, the now a world-renowned AI uh, institute. And so um, that, was, that was great. That, you, did you say you're still in control, even though you're taking on the, the money? Is Stephanie still in charge? <laughs> so I'm, I'm the CEO, so I do get to make decisions, but I do have a board and yeah. you know, we've raised so far, 
Um, I think in U.S. is about 7.8 million. Yeah, um, so that's from the seed round to doing some bridge round to and waiting for the market to catch up, but also advancing our technology. So the initial investment was very much in our tech and building models that will allow us to extract data out of hundreds of millions of different sources, yeah. and then normalizing the data uh, and then the infrastructure to do this at scale. And so, and then we had built some software at the time, which our software is proven to be still quite valuable. So mid-market that have no technology would use our interface as a lightweight version to get started, turn the light onto your data, get something to deploy that's really easy to use, that can produce some really fast wins and ROI. But when you want something more robust, so like say you want to invest into a more robust RFP tool, or you want to go into a real source to pay or P2P system, or get a more robust contract management system, we would encourage our clients to go and buy that based on the functionalities that meet their requirements and then just plug it into Tailbook so that the, the data, you don't have to recreate a profile of another supplier in another system <clears throat> or invite your suppliers to come to another portal, which they probably won't do. And then you're going to figure out how to subsidize for it. Um, and so, um, so that's, that's been, and, and since the raise, so I call it our third pivot is COVID, right? So, right. Get, get get money in the bank, awesome. Building out the team, great. We uh, started building our marketing team, which did spend all of January and February assessing all the sponsorship opportunities, having clients line up to speak on stage at conferences. March 4th or 3rd, you know, first conference in Miami being canceled. One of our employees went to New York at a conference and got COVID. 30-year-old, healthy, and then three weeks of like really hard um, time dealing with COVID. And so we had to think really fast how we're going to capitalize on this because what, what was so apparent with our customers or any enterprise is they spent millions of dollars in their technology stack, but did not still have the information to react fast enough to what was happening. And so that was a huge, I think, indicator that they, the importance of data, and that's all we hear now is how important, you know, supply chain visibility, resiliency, actionable data, how do we build an agile procurement function, and all of that can be enabled with a data platform. And so um, that, 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 you know, I, there's a slide, or I don't know if you saw this on social, it says, like, who's accelerate your digital transformation, the CFO, the CEO, or COVID, and then the checkbox of COVID, it's very <laughs> true for us. Um, we, we launched an initiative in the first week offering to any organization, private or public, a supplier list as we, part of our data set and the algorithms, we look at uh, 300 different dimensions of what makes a company similar or not to one another. And so you can find, you can, you, maybe you know a company or you find a company or two or three or four, click find similar companies, and then you can filter by region, by size, by mm. relevance, by certification so it's a really powerful way to find suppliers and with COVID and how reactive people were we were offering a supplier list for any organization that had a disruption in their supply chain and which was, was every which was which was everybody which was everyone <laughs> and so, so we're able to help over 170 companies within the, the first three weeks nice. a lot of pp requests or companies shifting brooks brothers was one notable one where we helped for raw ingredients to make over 100,000 N95 masks within weeks. Uh, we helped GM, Irving Oil, WHO, FEMA, the Red Cross. Uh, we landed the UK. They were looking for PP manufacturers that mm. were ISO certified to raise a level of confidence and trust and that they were suppliers that actually manufactured PPEs and not someone that just decided to start making masks. 
Um, and so that was pretty awesome. We got picked up also by Forbes nice. on companies who are handling that pretty well. Um, and then, you know, from there, it's been accelerated. Like everything's accelerated, partnerships, uh, and we're, we're, we're lining up probably another round of funding just to capitalize on that. What do you think you'll do in revenue this year? Can you share your target or no? Is that a little too we're private? Not sharing our, yeah, we're not sharing your revenue right now. <laughs> how, how about this? How many employees? Can you tell us that? So we were 16 before Christmas, and we're now over 30. So we more than doubled our employees. Our employees. Congratulations on that. Uh, by the way, as you were talking about raising the cash and dealing with the board and investors and all, that's something you had to kind of get used to and learn, right? You, you did all these other things. Even when you built your consulting firm, you never really had to deal with investors or VC or PE, cap tables, all this other stuff. But you, you kind of learned that as you went along here, as you started raising cash. <laughs> yeah, and it was, a, it was a steep, steep learning curve. I don't know why, but it was really, really steep. Um, and I, when I mentor... Uh, founders, you know, we talk through that as to why, you know, why it's hard and, and what you can do to position yourself more successfully. Because you hear the success stories, you hear people say, well, you have to be cocky. Investors have to come to you and knock on your door. Uh, you, you know, you have to start, you know, getting to know investors before you raise capital. You hear all these things, but when you're like in desperate mode of building a company and you need cash, you're like, okay, that sounds really awesome, but I just need to find money. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and, and I would do it again, very differently. I think now because we show growth, all these other things don't matter. But at the beginning, you raise capital based on you and your idea and the opportunity in the market. And it's mostly the founder, right? So, um, and you come across, how you come across is really important. So for me, it was really important to ask for feedback and not everyone wants to give it to you because they don't want to, you know, they don't want to say no and then miss out if they, they said the wrong thing and some feel like they're going to hurt my feelings. And but the ones who actually were providing me feedback is how I was able to eventually raise capital, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so hearing what I need to change and how I came across, to, to, you know, I had not raised money before. I had not built a tech company before I did not go to Stanford I have a funny foreign accent I'm in Canada like it, it, all these things right and I'm a mother of three kids like who's this chick like that's trying to raise money and build this like data platform and I would probably feel the same if I had seen me at, at, at that time like who's this girl and, and will she have the chops for this if I put money in her company you know what happens if one of her kids gets sick or if she gets sick like the level of risk is really high and I always remember this guy that I you know, highly respect. Um, so like, Hey, Lone Ranger, like <laughs> you can't do this alone. And, uh, you know, you need to find, you need to find a team and you need to have your technology in house. Uh, the, uh -huh. the, the outsourcing your technology does not increase your, the value of your company. Oh. And so you really need to bring the technology in house. Oh, do what? I have a child? <laughs> hey, hey, hi there. Recorded, honey. I don't care. <laughs> you can cut this off. <laughs> Um, she, uh, she's got so, your, she's got your personality, obviously. <laughs> she's my, she's my lookalike. Um, and, um, and so, you know, so you need to find a team, you need to have your technology in house and you need to find a team. And, uh, but at the time I was so like, I had these six customers I needed, you know, I, I needed runway, uh, to be able to deliver. And then suddenly you're like, I proved this with six customers. We have a, a data partner at the time. We had six customers. Like, you know, if I have the money, I'll be able to hire the right people. And, and he looked at me and he's like, you won't get money without a team. 
And I remember feeling so defeated because we, I was sort of getting at the end of my runway and I was like, you know, I don't, I, but I need the capital to get the, it was sort of the chicken or the egg. Yeah, and right. he was right. He was right. I need to, I needed to de-risk myself for investors mm-hmm. um, to be, you know, even though I was passionate and I, I was a really a domain expert in procurement, like I knew what I was talking about and they saw that you know clearly I was entrepreneurial and and potentially could be resilient and one of the things that investors have said over I'm very coachable right I listen I take feedback I just um and they like that but it's still I was still a high risk and so finding Jeff and at the time I found another executive who um came in and he's got a different role now but at the time he had successfully uh, you know, uh, exited from his own company and their boat came with a ton of technology. Like they were like, they were the real deal to build mm. this platform and, and the vision. Um, and did that you have the money? Did you have the money to pay them what their market value was at the time? Or did you were like, Hey, come over here and like, maybe there's an equity play in it for you or something like that. <laughs> well, you have to have an equity play, but they, luckily they just ex- exited from, from that company. And so yeah. they had the money in the bank. They were looking for a project to work on together. Gotcha. Um, and and with Jeff's background, you know, everything sort of aligned. Like he said, nice. even like, it feels like everything I've done in my career is to land at Chillbook. It sort of grabbed all the component of my experience and my interest and in data. And so that was, a, you know, a gift, honestly. There's a lot of magic moments. I think everyone that I've met that is part of our team have all happened. I've, I've sort of popped into my life at the exact moment I needed them. And oh, I think it's, great. you know... I think there's a bit of magic. There's, there's got to be a lot of magic dust actually for a company to be successful. But that was that was one of those moments. Including, um, and including, finding, including being on the soccer field at the right time. <laughs> at the right time. Uh, very good. If you had to give some advice around time management, I think about your life now. You're, you're still the chair of your consulting firm. So you're still involved there to a certain degree. You're married, three kids at home. Plus you're doing this, this company, there's gotta be people listening to this going, how the hell does she find, how does she organize all this? Like, how does she do all of this? So what would you tell the listener with regards to time management and family and just being able to accomplish all this? What would you say? Uh, I mean, I remember uh, interviewing, I think in high school, this, the mom of a friend of mine that was, I, I looked up to, she was this executive at a company and she'd really worked her way up and I remember her telling me like it's the most important thing is to find balance for yourself for your family for your work and and I always had that in the back of my mind like but I didn't know what it actually meant and when I started Book, there was no balance like my my mind was obsessed with building this company that's all I could talk about that's all I could think about um but having three kids, it forces you to step out. And so I think if I had no kids, I would have, I would have not been married and I would have had no children. But the fact that I started after, <laughs> you know, it was always, and I had a healthy relationship with my husband. So, you know, we're able to deal with it, but it wasn't easy. I was traveling, you know, every week. Um, and then you're really obsessed. I was, you know, I, I still work a lot, but I was working, you know, in the transition of the businesses and start building a book and, uh, and I, if you ask me why I was on planes every week, I don't actually quite know, right? Um, but you, you want meeting people that it's investors or customers or conferences and, and so on and so forth. So really trying, I think on my family, trying on myself. Um, but it's when, it's when we start getting, honestly, last year, a year ago, my husband forced 
we, we rented a house in the Bahamas for two weeks. And that's when my new VP of commercial strategy was starting. And what was really important, and I think it's hard when you're a founder, is to give up responsibilities, you know, give up. And if you don't do it, then you can't grow. So with technology, it was easy. I don't have any technology background. So that was, you know, when Jeff started, like, here that's you easy. go. Yeah, I have, yeah, here you go. <laughs> I have no, like, tell me what you need and, and how I can, you know, make it, make it easier. But with Matt was different because he was coming in and taking over all the things I had been heavily involved, the customer facing, and, the, yeah. the partnership. Yeah. Um, all, all, the so things that you're, of, all, the, all the things that you're excellent at. <laughs> and maybe not, right? I'm good at opening doors. I'm good at getting people excited. I'm less good at building processes mm. that, you know, from an operational perspective, that's not my core strength. Yeah, and yeah. Matt has that. Matt was able to bring a process to building our sales team, to building our marketing, to now really focus because our partnership has accelerated exponentially. So now building the partnership strategy and executing on it. Um, but it was really important. I went away for two weeks last year and it was the first time that I was actually able to, I'd call him in the morning. I said, do you need me in any of these meetings? Like, nope, nope, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. And then by the second week I was like, oh, wow. Like I could actually look at my kids and be present and not obsess so much. Um, so that was, that was, you know, a, a huge sort of awakening to come back. And I was more refreshed. I was more strategic. I was, you know, in a much better space place to then take on the next leg of our, our company. And since then, you know, having Matt and now we've hired Kate Hans, who's leading our customer success and, and um, experience. And Kate comes from the procurement digital transformation companies like Rogers, Unilever, American Express. Like she's just, and she's just the right fit. And so she was a piece of the puzzle that would allow me to finally step out of operations and do what I do best. Very and, nice. uh, and that's been really transformative. And then COVID happened. Um, and I'm being sensitive to the fact that COVID has been really, really tough on a lot of people. We have a lot of people I know personally who lost their jobs or businesses really mm -hmm. went to like, you know, lost 70% of revenue, had to let people go, which are really hard decisions. And I can't imagine having to cope with that mm -hmm. and, and COVID alone and all the stresses. But for me, it's been one, an accelerator for the business and an opportunity to be home with my family. And honestly, I've never felt more rested. I've never been more grounded. I started doing yoga with the team twice a week. We started doing guided meditation once cool. a week. Um, cool. I started doing Pilates and, and it gives me, you know, just, I, I'm, you know, it's, yeah, it gives me a different it perspective. Feel, feel, and I hope, yeah, I hope I don't go back to, I, I see myself in high heels running at airport, running to meetings, running to school, running to the office, running, running, running. And I just hope that there's a more of a balanced approach mm -hmm. to, you know, when we go back to normal. Do you ever reflect and look up and wonder if your grandpa's looking down at you saying, Hey, you built something too. Do you ever think about that? I think my parents uh, are still like shaking their head going like, what on earth? One, I don't think they fully understand what I do. Like, even though I've explained it a bunch of times um, because I didn't speak English. I refused to speak English when I was a kid. I, we had a, a farm, a horse farm and, I was really, you know, they thought I was going to get married at 18 and have kids and live on a horse farm and uh, never leave Quebec, you know, and suddenly I'm the CEO of an AI data company <laughs> on Forbes. And, and I don't, I don't think they, they, you know, and they, they're super proud, like I, in many ways. And I've got messages like, wow, you're so stubborn. You have 
so much energy and it's so good to see that you've put that to a good place. Um, so I know they're, they're super proud, but I think it was a little bit of like, huh, Steph, like we, we thought Steph was going to be on a horse farm. Um, <laughs> and when you tell them, when, so, you tell them, when you tell them what your business is, is they're still a little bit like they, they don't fully comprehend what it is. <laughs> my dad a little more because of Pepsi and, and being on the manufacturing side understands yeah. it better. And my mom, you know, I took a few times to articulate. I don't think if you ask her, I don't think she could explain to you, uh, but they're super proud. And I do think my grandmother would be, you know, would be really proud. I think she's done something pretty exceptional at the time. And especially in those days. um, And she's been a big inspiration. Very nice. Well, congratulations on everything you have built, by the way, for the listeners, tealbook.com, tealbook, tealbook.com. You can also find Stephanie, uh, of course, on LinkedIn and connect with her there. Congratulations. Uh, not only have you built two companies now <laughs> that are both operating and profitable and revenues are growing, quite a success story and a beautiful family too. I only got to see one of the children, but uh, I'm assuming they're all beautiful. So congratulations. Really. <laughs> Super happy for you, Stephanie. Thank you so much for being on the Rider Flex podcast and sharing your story. Yeah, thank you for having me. Nice talking to you. The RiderFlex podcast features entrepreneurs, business executives, and the stories behind how they got there, as well as daily tips on career advice and job interviews. Our show can be heard just about anywhere these days, but you can visit RiderFlex.com and click on the podcast page to hear all the previous episodes and learn more about the recruiting and consulting services we provide. Contact us at the email address info at riderflex.com or 888-964-5876. Thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoy our show, please be sure to subscribe to our channel and like the episodes.